Our scripture reading this morning comes from the first chapter of John's Gospel, starting at verse 19 and through to verse 34. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the paths of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water and said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here this morning. Let's just pray quickly. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It's a light to our feet. It's a light to our path. Open our hearts, Lord, so that we can see wondrous things in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're returning again today to our relatively new series in John's Gospel. And uh, we've reached that point after John's prologue where the ministry and the witness of John the Baptist uh, is introduced to us. The ministry and the witness of John the Baptist and something of its significance. Now let's just note just for a moment especially if you've uh, not heard the last uh, couple of weeks. Let's just note quickly what we have learned as we exit John's prologue and look at the ministry of John. We've learned that the Word is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. Look what John says there in verse 34. I have seen and testified that He, this is the one, the Word, that John's been writing about, is the Son of God. 
He's the Son of God. He's the Word of God who gives communion with God. And don't forget, at the root, at the heart of the Christian life, of the Christian message, is that the purpose of human life, the purpose of our lives, is to have communion with God. I think the Westminster Confession puts it, the chief end of man, the chief purpose of man is to worship God and to enjoy him forever. So we've learned the word is the son of God who gives communion with God and the world was made through him to serve that communion with God. The world in which we live was made to serve our communion with God. Everything he's arranged in the creation of all things is a token of his love where everything would enhance our communion with God. So all the blessings that are around you in the world today, in creation today, are there as a token of God's love to enhance our communion with God because that's the purpose of our lives to know God, to walk with God, to have communion with God. And we know that this communion was broken by the fall, our fall in Adam. You remember that God, we're told in Scripture, walked in the garden in the cool of the day with our first parents. There was communion, there was fellowship. And that communion and that fellowship was broken. But John, in this marvelous gospel, is showing us that that communion is being restored by the one who is the light and who is the life. And that's what we've been thinking about these past few weeks because true life is communion with God. Last week in particular, we thought about how the eternal word took it upon himself to become the second Adam. So the word that we thought about in the first five verses, this eternal word who was with God and was God, took it upon himself to become the second Adam. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. And so now communion with God depends solely upon the word who has been made flesh. There's no other way to communion with God There's no other path to communion with God. It depends solely upon the word who became flesh. No one has ever known God on their own. No mystic, no sage, no guru, no monk, no ascetic has ever known God on their own and climbed up to God to find out who he is. Rather, the Son has revealed God to us because of his great love. There is no knowledge of God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important to have that foundation of the prologue in mind. Here is life and light in order to understand the ministry of John the Baptist. The Apostle John tells us that the Son was made manifest as an ordinary, weak human being. Burdened with the yoke of our misery, subject to suffering and death. So how are we going to recognize him? 
if he is made flesh and he looks like us and he's an ordinary human being in his incarnation and he's burdened with the yoke of misery. The scripture says he's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. He's subject to suffering and death yet without sin. How are we to recognize him? And this is what John the Baptist takes up. So here is the word made flesh. He's full of grace and he's full of truth. And we're going to consider this morning the first witness to that truth. The first public witness to that truth, John the Baptist, in three simple aspects. First, the voice, the sign, and the spirit. So children, if you're making notes, and adults, the voice, the sign, and the spirit. First of all, then, the voice. So the Son of God grew up from childhood. Now think about that, kids. He grew up from childhood like any other human being. Even though he was the Son of God, he was the Word made flesh. He grew up like a little child. Might have been running around a bit in the synagogue, making noise, which I know you're not going to do this morning. He looked like any other human being. The scripture says there was no, was no particular beauty, like the King James there, comeliness. Some of you used a comb this morning, I see. There was no beauty that we should be attracted to him. So it wasn't that, the, that John looks up one day and sees this sort of Greek Adonis coming towards him. Look, there. Son of God. No. There was nothing about the physical appearance of Christ that would have made us say, look, there's somebody really special. We better listen to him. And since the world was alienated from God, the world would not recognize the Son by itself. Grew up like a child. As an ordinary child. Grows up. And a world alienated from him wasn't going to recognize him. We saw that last week. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. So God sent John the Baptist to introduce Christ as Son of Man and Son of God, our Redeemer. He was sent as a voice, as a voice to bear witness, to bear witness to the truth. Several months before Jesus begins his uh, public ministry, John begins to preach, John the Baptist begins to preach about the kingdom of God and about the one who would restore communion with God and by that restoration of communion, restore our life. That that one, John is saying, that one is come at last. And actually, that restoration of the Messiah is what the kingdom of God is. The restoration of our life through Christ is 
the kingdom of God. That's what's meant by the kingdom of God. The restoration of our communion with God and our life in communion with God as it impacts the root of our being and then from there every aspect of life. And he comes preaching this good news. The good news of the kingdom is indeed news. That's why it attracted such interest. But all news that you hear is interpreted in terms of something you already know. Otherwise you can't understand it. So news is always always interpreted in terms of something you already know. I read this week, and I heard this week, listening to an MPP, that the federal government is planning on building isolation facilities, I think they're internment camps, in every province. They don't want to ask, answer questions about it in the provincial parliament. Now, when I heard that and I read that, I thought, well, that's fairly easy for me to integrate that news into my thinking. I mean, based on what's already been happening, I can integrate that news. I don't like it. I think we should be very concerned about it. But I can integrate that news. The more startling, though, the news, the more difficult it is to integrate that news into what we already know. This is one of the reasons we have to find points of contact with people when we're sharing the gospel with them. Because if you're giving them news, good news, but they've got no context for understanding it, you need some points of contact. People need context to grasp the radical character of the message. Because John's message and the leaders from Jerusalem who were sent down to investigate it, John's message wasn't like other messages that they'd heard before. It sounded different. Remember this, as um, de Graff has pointed out, and I quote, life in God's communion demanded a complete change in our lives. Our life without God had to die, and a new life was to begin. That is why God sent John to baptize. Baptism signifies the death of the old life and the birth of the new. John didn't come talking about self-improvement. It wasn't like one of those books you pick up at the airport. You know, seven steps to this and five steps to that, and how to be healthy, happy, and wise. No, he... The message of the kingdom was death to something old and rebirth to something new. That's a radical message. So at the beginning of the gospel proclamation of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the apostle John's gospel addresses, right at the beginning, the point of contact. How can John communicate this radical news and have a point of contact with the people? Well, first... The Apostle John gives us the first point of contact in the prologue. We've already covered it. 
the universal, the, uh, it's a universal point of contact in the creation of all things by the word. Well, there's a universal point of contact for all of us when we're sharing the gospel. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Night after night, they pour forth speech. They make knowledge known. There is no language in which their voice is not heard. It goes forth to the end of the world. So there's, there's the first point of contact, creation itself. But due to sin and the breaking of our communion with God, we needed more points of contact than that. And in fact, human beings were never left simply to look at creation and know God. God walked with our first parents, spoke with them. There was word revelation. So more points of contact are required. And so John, the Baptist, is sent to prepare the way. And if you look in verse 19, this is John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? So immediately the world, and especially the religious world, wants to know, who are you? And what are you talking about? The world and the religious world of the Jews here, that is the world organized apart from Christ, wants answers about this message. And as we see throughout the Gospels, the Jewish leaders of the time had made religion the art of unbelief. The art of unbelief. And they're concerned about the influence that John might be having on the people. They've not sent uh, representatives down there to get baptized. They've sent them down there to case out the situation, to spy on the situation. What he said, what John the Baptist said, was completely different from what they were saying, and they're concerned about their spiritual leadership. Is it under threat? This man, is he dangerous to us? So they sent qualified representatives. Qualified representatives to find out who the uneducated Baptist is claiming to be. So what they were looking for was a familiar box into which to slot John so they could know how to handle him. Which category is he in? What box can we put John the Baptist in and that will give us the right strategy for handling this man wearing camel skins, eating locusts and honey. In many ways, the Western church today should see in the Jewish establishment then a portrait of itself. Frequently in the grip of unbelief, preserving the status quo, And afraid of the message of the kingdom and reign of Jesus Christ. But don't even want to preach it. Now these representatives that came down, they would have been drawn from among the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They were scribes, they were Levites, they were priests and Levites. The Sadducees were rationalistic theologians of their time. That's the best way of understanding the Sadducees. 
They wanted the light of their own reason. They didn't even believe in the resurrection. For them, religion was about reason, man's reason. It was a rationalistic religion, a rationalistic concept of God. They didn't want John's revelation of the grace of God in Christ. The Pharisees, they were moralists. Moralists. Lots of religious moralists today. There's lots of religious rationalists. Liberalism is always rationalistic and moralistic. It's all over the church today. The moralists thought that their traditions, their breeding, their ethnic breeding for the Pharisees, and their good deeds were sufficiently meritorious to make them children of God. We, didn't, we don't need a message about grace in the Son of God, in the Son of Man. With sons and daughters of Abraham. You recall that Jesus once said to them, if God wanted to, he could raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Both groups were disturbed by this desert voice. It was summoning everyone to be baptized. They were troubled by it. But John, as we see in the text, denies he embodies any of the identities that they suggest for him. So say, are you the Messiah? Nope. Are you Elijah? Elijah, come back to us. No. Are you the prophet like Moses? Nope. Who are you then? So those were the three boxes that they had. We haven't got time to talk about all of those this morning. But those were the three. They were hoping to slot John into one of those categories in terms of his claim. But he said, no, I'm not any of those. So who are you then? And the question is not simply academic. They're not wanting to go back to Jerusalem and write a thesis. It's an urgent and practical question because they want to know how to act in light of it. In light of John's answer. And of course, we need to know how to act in light of the word of God. We don't just ask these questions as theologians. The vast majority of us here aren't theologians. You're not going to leave here this morning and go and write a paper on the sermon. No, we want to know how, we, how to respond to God's word. How are we to live in terms of the word of God? The word of God is never an academic matter simply. It doesn't mean it's not helpful and useful to have academic theology to deepen some of our insights into certain things. But it's not an academic matter. It's always geared to response and action. The word of God is always directed towards response and action. It's never enough just to sit and warm a pew and for us to leave unchanged, unchallenged. The Word of God is always wanting to do a work in our lives. So John's answer to their question is vital. He says, I'm a voice. I'm a voice. Make straight the way of the Lord. And at this point, he does give them their point of contact because he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. And they would have all known Isaiah 40. 
a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places are plain and the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. All humanity together will see it. Well, there's a point of contact. And this role as a voice is vital for us to understand. Leslie Newbegin, a wonderful missiologist, the late Leslie Newbegin, he says this, he explains, he is only a voice. It is futile to try and get behind the voice and fix him in a place of your scheme of things. There is nothing there for you to get hold of. The speaker has no importance. You must listen to the voice. That's what John is saying. He's not assigning importance to himself. And this is true, of course, of all our witness to the kingdom of God, and it should be true of all preaching. You know, sometimes when we're sharing the gospel, we're talking about the meaning of the gospel, people want to know, who are you? What are you selling? What do you get out of this? What's your power play? Isn't that what every person is supposedly deconstructed today in terms of their will to power? What's the power play here? What spirituality are you selling? No. In and of ourselves, we're of no importance. Our significance is only in relationship to Christ. And this is what John is saying about himself. We're instruments, we are ministers, we are co-workers. Even in the preaching today, though God uses the person and personality, it's not about getting hold of the person behind the voice, but listening to the Word of God. Otherwise, this would be a tremendous act of arrogance and conceit, wouldn't it, every Sunday for maybe three members of a congregation of over 250 to stand up on a platform and tell you what to do or how to behave? Because we know that's not what's going on. That's why when we read the Word of God, we stand and we stand under the Word of God. Because it's not the person, the personality that's important. It's the voice of the Word of God that's important. And that's why a public act of worship is nothing like going to the cinema. Or going to the theater. Or listening to a political speech. And interestingly, that's why it is historically uniquely protected in Canada's criminal code. Did you know it's a criminal offense in Canada to interrupt a public act of worship? It's not to interrupt a political speech, interrupt somebody's class, interrupt a sporting event. But it is to interrupt a public act 
of worship or to interfere with a minister in the conducting of his duty. It's section 176 of the criminal code. Because we recognize historically there's something unique about what happens in worship as we come around God's word and his table. It is the word ministering to us by the spirit that's all important. So trust and dependence on personalities can only lead to disappointment. Because even Christian personalities fall and fail. Paul says, that's why you should never in the church get into, I am of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Piper. I'm of MacArthur. I'm of Boot, or whatever it may be. No, we're of Christ. We're of Christ. John's voice was that of the promise of God. It was revelation from God directing attention to the Lamb of God, the Messiah. So you cannot file the voice of the word away into an already organized category so that you can neatly tidy it up and set it aside in intellectual pride like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Oh yeah, I know that stuff. And I know better. No, this doesn't come to us as something that you can neatly categorize into something you learned at school and tidy it up and set it aside. Oh, this is psychological phenomena, this Christian religion. Oh, this is evolutionary development. This is uh, religious myth, muthos. I'll just file it under that. No, it requires instead that we listen and prepare our hearts to receive Christ. For we know and understand nothing as we should. We're ignorant and frequently we're arrogant. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were, but this news was radically new and they had to set aside all their preconceptions, and listen to the voice. John's the first witness because the gospel is news and he's a voice. He's not there drawing conclusions for the Pharisees out of the data he already knows. He's not a theologian. He's a voice pointing, reporting, affirming. He's a witness. He is a voice. But there's also a sign. There's also a sign that comes with the voice. This is the second thing. There is a sign. John denies any independent significance to his person then. So don't look at me. Listen to the voice. But he is a voice who comes with action. He comes with a sign. The sign of baptism to which he summons everyone. What was the meaning of this baptism, though, if he wasn't the Messiah, if he wasn't Elijah or the prophet? And that was the question that they had. Why are you baptizing then? 
What's the meaning of the sign? If you're not one of these people, what's the significance, the significance, the sign significance? That's what significance really means. What does the sign mean? What's it all about? Well, the washing with water was a familiar symbol of spiritual cleansing in the ancient world. It was a common ritual of the Jews. But a sign does not guarantee the presence of the thing signified. The fact that the Jews had previously and the Pharisees themselves practiced washing and, and, and baptisms did not mean that the thing signified was present there. If you have an apostate church that doesn't believe the gospel, rejects the word of God, and yet holds communion, the presence of the thing signified, well, the scripture says Ichabod, the temple was there, but the spirit had long since departed. In its full meaning, which is actually indicated in Ezekiel 36 and Zechariah 13, which links the washing of water to the gift of the Holy Spirit, that full significance had not yet been fully disclosed. So John says, I baptize with water. I'm a voice, and this is the sign. I baptize with water. The reality to which it points, though, is still hidden, and the reality is immeasurably greater than the sign. So I baptize with water, but the reality that it represents, you don't yet know. And it's greater than the sign. That's why John says, he is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. The sign of the renewal of life is the servant, the humblest servant of the coming reality. It points beyond itself to the one who gives the gift of renewal itself. And it's interesting, though, that to, to, to remember that today our signs are greater than the ones John knew. Because our signs come with the fullness of the significance of what is signified. Paul says that he preached with the Spirit of God and power. The Holy Spirit has been given. Still, the voice and the sign are nothing in themselves. It's just a tank of water or bread and wine are nothing in themselves. But they direct our attention to the one. In John's case, to the one who was to come, the light to which John came to bear witness. So John gives us the words of the Baptist. Look at verse 29. We'll read 29 through 34 again. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who has surpassed me because he existed before me. I didn't know him But I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I watched the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
So John declares Christ to be the Lamb of God, the sin-bearer. He's the one. He's the sin-bearer. How did he know? Well, because the Lord Jesus himself, and he's looking back on this now, the Lord himself had come to be baptized, to be incorporated into his people as their head. That's why Jesus was baptized. He wasn't baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He was baptized to be incorporated into his people as their head. And the heavens are opened, and the Father declares him to be his beloved Son, and the Spirit descends like a dove. Imagine what that day must have been like for John as he walked down to the waters, as the Lord Jesus came, comes down to the water's edge and says, baptize me, John. And he is there incorporated into his people as the new head. Now, the scriptures actually tell us that even though John and Jesus are related and knew one another, this true identity of Christ by the Spirit of God is only given by revelation. Because John and Jesus are cousins. They knew each other. But twice John says, verse 31 and 33, I didn't know him. Well, they probably played together as kids. Remember we said, children, he grew up from a child like an ordinary child. He played with his friends. He played with his cousins. I didn't know him. I didn't recognize his true identity purely in human terms, even though they were relatives. But he who sent me to baptize with water told me. The one who sent me to baptize with water told me. This is a reminder that to know who the carpenter from Nazareth really is, is not something which flesh and blood is capable of knowing. You cannot truly understand who Christ is by yourself, by the reach of your own mind. Jesus said so himself, it must be given to you by the Father, Matthew sixteen seventeen. No man knoweth the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This knowledge of God, this knowledge of the meaning of the sign, to know who Jesus really is, it's a gift, it's not an achievement. You know it only by the grace of God and the gift of God. To know Christ as the Lamb of God, the sin-bearer, who restores us to life and communion with God is the mercy of God, and it's the source of our cleansing. And you know, that's why it's hard to truly become a Christian, because you have to humble yourself. It's not an achievement. Getting enlightenment is an achievement in pagan religion. 
reaching nirvana, although you would never know you'd got there because there is no self there, but reaching oneness is an achievement. Or in all pagan religion, it's an ach- every, always the idea of access to the idea of the divine is some kind of achievement. You've prayed enough times. You've done your pilgrimage to Mecca. You've meditated. You've been on a, a, a pilgrimage for cessation so that you recognize the oneness behind all things. It's an achievement. But becoming a Christian requires you to humble yourself like a child because it's a gift. It's revealed to you. Finally, the Spirit, the voice, the sign, and the Spirit. John focused people's attention on Christ, not on himself then. Why? Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit doesn't focus attention on himself. He comes to reveal Christ to us and in us and to the world. In fact, Jesus reminds the disciples when they are concerned about Christ's departure. He said, it's good that I go because then I'll send you another comforter like myself. And he will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He'll convince the world about me. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He teaches us about Christ. He directs us to Christ. And so it was pure joy for John. It was a, it was a marvel for John the Baptist to point to the Lamb of God. For in him he had seen the salvation of the world. He says, I have seen and testified. He is the Son of God. So for John, this wasn't a burden. This wasn't a sense that, oh gosh, my prophetic ministry is in decline now. You know, now that the, 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 the Messiah is here. No. Listen to him. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. And that's why we should rejoice wherever God is at work and Christ is truly preached and his kingdom is truly being advanced. We should rejoice about that, even if it's not us doing it. Just like Simeon. You remember Simeon when he had held the infant uh, Jesus in his arms when Mary and Joseph had brought him to the temple and he could say, now let your servant depart in peace. Because my eyes have seen your salvation. And this is what it's like for John. He's been living out in the desert, wearing camel skins, eating locusts and honey and whatever else. And now the very purpose of his ministry reaches its realization. It comes to its realization. Here he is. This is the one I've been telling you about. I told you I saw the Spirit come down on him. Imagine how hard that must have been for an ordinary man to say about his own cousin. He's the son of God. Could you say anything remotely close about any of your relatives? (laughs) But John had seen by revelation who Jesus Christ really is. 
And to see him and point him to others becomes our real joy, even though it takes us out of the limelight. To proclaim the lordship of Christ, the salvation of Christ, the kingship of Christ. There's no greater joy than that because it takes us out of the limelight. And in that, we truly understand who we are. He must increase. I love the words of this hymn writer. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away our fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. Jesus, my shepherd, savior, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end. Accept the praise I bring. Weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. Till then I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath. And may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. Do you not want to point him out to others? Because that's who Jesus Christ is. What a privilege it is. What a joy it is. Now, you can only sing a hymn like that truly from the heart if Christ has been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way. And John receives this revelation as Jesus is baptized, as the Lord Jesus hears John's message as a call from the Father to fully identify with his people whose sin he would bear and take as his own. Baptize me, John. Because I'm going to bear people's sins away. The sin of the whole world. So he presents himself to receive baptism as a sign of the cleansing from sin promised by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me quote to you, Newbegin, one more time about what happened when Jesus is baptized. He says, he accepted the sign. And in that act, the sign and the thing signified met. Baptism and the coming of the Spirit. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit. He heard in his ears words that echoed the word of the Lord. Behold my servant upon whom, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. John and Jesus see this visual image of the dove. And it's only the action of the spirit that can reveal to us who Jesus is. So even this morning, don't try and extrapolate from your human understanding to arrive at the knowledge of God. Every thought product of purely human reach and human wisdom is not God. Whatever you arrive at, the thought product of the divine is not the living God, because in the beginning was the Word. And if we are to know him as he is in personal communion, in the intimacy with which Jesus knew the Father, the sin which actually prevents us from entering communion has to be removed. 
And the Spirit of God has to grant us a new heart. And that's what we have the symbols of this morning. Of our sin being removed. Of the the Spirit giving us a new heart. A renewal of the covenant so that we can have the same intimacy with the Father that Jesus had with his Father. He is the Lamb of God. He's the Passover Lamb. And he removes the fearful totality of sin And he breaks its power. And this is our sign of it today. And this sign, in this sign, and that which is signified meet because Christ has died for sin and the Spirit has been given. So this is a means of grace to us this morning. By this we have access to reliable knowledge of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. And if it is God himself who is revealed then the revealer and the revealed are one and not two. The Spirit and Christ are one. And then we have to say of Jesus, that though he comes after John the Baptist, yet he was before him. The one who was before all things and through whom all things were made. The word which is both revelation and reconciliation was in the beginning and he is present with us now at his table.